actress Julie Christie. You might remember me from the film Dr. Zhivago and last week's film, Darling. I'm ever so happy you enjoyed them. But this week, we're going to take a look at a different film by my monstrous director friend, David Lee. It's called The Bridge on the River Kwai, and it's a fascinating film. You'll love Alec Guinness a lot, I assure you. So, join Brendan and Jason as they take a look at this epic film on for screen and country. Thank you. Thank you, Dame Julie Christie. Is she a dame? No. Oh, well, she should be. <laughs> I just uh, just wanted to... Well, I think... I mean, she's a dame, all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, wow, look at that audio spike. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know what? I think we just I think we just made her a dame. We knighted her. We queened her. What is it called? Uh, I think it's running them through with a sword, I think is what... The, I think the queen stabs them, and then they become a, a knight? And then die. And then die. But yes. you were a knight at that point, so your life's made for the last 30 seconds of it. Jason. Yes, Brendan. What is this show? This show is called For Screen and Country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do we do? We watch British movies and then we pontificate about them. Specifically, British movies. Oh, British movies that have made it to the British Film Institute's top 100 British films of all British time. All British time. And we are talking today about number 11 on that list. The Bridge on the River Kwai. But before we get to that film... We have something else to talk about! Wow. Yeah, I blew it out a bit there, guys, folks. Sorry, sorry for, sorry for your ears. Just, you know, uh, put, put some drops in there. Yeah, sorry, guy, folks. That's what you said. What? You said gafolks. Gafolks? Gafolks. Yeah, sorry, gay folks. You're the only ones whose ears were hurt by my <laughs> by my yelling. Are you saying... That? I call them gafolks. Just saying gay folks. I want, to, I want to shorten it. I don't have time. It's a cute little affectation. Yeah. Gafolks. Um, so before we talk about a big, big movie this week, uh, we need to talk a little bit about Darling. A little getting... movie that has a lot of heart. A little movie. <laughs> it's like the little engine that could. That's right, except before that. So let's talk about Darling. We had a few comments, but honestly not a lot, because not a lot, not a lot of people not have a seen widely, Darling. Yeah, not a widely watched movie, and understandable. I mean, it's pretty obscure, but goddamn Julie Christie. And I know you guys are out there with your John Schlesinger feuds. I'm just, I'm going to say it on record, guys. Just drop the feud, okay? Just drop it. Schlesinger didn't mean it. Didn't mean nothing. So, uh, this is the first one. This is the only purely 100% positive comment about this movie. What does it say, Brendan? It's, uh, well, it's from Charlie Jorgensen. All right, Charlie, what do you got? And Charlie says, saw it last year and found it to be solid. In addition to the swinging London curiosities and a performance by Christie that convincingly convincingly shows both naivete and world weariness, I was most struck by Lawrence Harvey, Mm. who uh, I think we kind of said that... He was Domino's one of the better dead. parts. Yeah, Domino's dead. That's how he's known. He is wolfishly charming here. Ooh, a good word. Good word. So it's a great contrast with the first and hence most memorable role I've seen him perform: the Cold Fish Manchurian Candidate. Oh, he was oh. in that movie. That is a great film, by the way. The original was that the Frank Sinatra one? No, that was the Denzel Washington. Lawrence, oh, yeah, Lawrence okay. Harvey was totally he this. was seventy-eight and dead. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, the original uh, with Angela Lansbury, who's actually terrifying <laughs> i can't imagine but then we get sort of in the middle comments here jenny rogers says i saw it a few years ago but have no recollection of my opinions that must mean i didn't love it or hate it yeah i suppose it does i mean that's the thing if, if, if you can't remember a movie good or bad i think that's the worst sign really like even i mean like i i couldn't there's so many movies i've seen over the years that i was like eh 
But damn it, I can tell you all about Bulletproof Monk. Man, that was a fucking terrible movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I might have to do that on the other podcast. You have to. Oh. I have it on DVD. Yeah, I, 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 we're not going to get into it now. You have to do it on the other <laughs> podcast. Uh, Mark Newfang says, I watched it when I was doing my Best Actress Challenge. So he actually was going through watching all the movies... I think uh, all the movies I think that won Best Actress. Of each oh, year. that's a cool, that's a cool way to go about it. Yeah, so he's like, it's been a while, so I can't comment too much on it. Christie is good, but I'm surprised at her Oscar win. I didn't think the film. I don't think the film left a big impression with me. It was fine. <laughs> so, like, that's most of the comments here. It's yeah, like, I mean, it was, at, it was... at the end of it, I mean, I think we both kind of we both enjoyed the movie to some extent, but I, I, I think yeah, it was really more about her performance. I think in the end of it than anything like that. I mean, the other guys are good too, Lawrence Harvey and, and the other fella, but like, it really is about her, and she. Uh, it's a showcase for her talents. His name is Dirk Bogart. Dirk Bogart. Bitch. It's a goddamn good name. It's he's no Dirk Benedict. Or but if Dirk Bogart had been on BSG, holy fuck! Or Dirk Diggler. Dirk Diggler. What if Dirk Bogart had been on the A Team? I don't know the theme. Nah, me neither. <laughs> we, we were too young to have watched the A Team. I'm 35. I'm still too young to have watched the A Team. I watched the shitty movie. Oh, with the uh, Rampage Jackson. B Coops. Yeah. Was he Hannibal? Brad Coops. Yeah. Oh wait, no. Liam Neeson was Hannibal. I don't know. Brad Coops was pretty boy or babyface. Face. Or yeah, he was Dirk Benedict. Wow. Everybody who was a fan of that show <laughs> is so angry right now. <laughs> Oh, but, but the best part of A-Team was the fact that uh, Dwight Schultz played uh, Howlin' Mad Murdoch, and he later went on to play uh, Reginald Barkley on Star Trek The Next Generation. So there you go, folks. Thank you. Thank I you for mean, listening to welcome. our A-Team podcast. <laughs> our, our little our A-Team sub-podcast in the middle of this podcast. Now back to the real podcast. <laughs> so our last little comment here, like I said, there's not too many, but this is from Jessica Johnson. What does Jessica Johnson say? Uh, Jessica Johnson, which is a great name. Isn't that a Marvel character, Jessica Johnson? Jessica Jones. Jessica, Jessica Jones. Jones. Well, you're close. I guess yeah. the name sucks. We're on to you. We're on to Jessica, Jessica Johnson. Air quotes Johnson. You're the you're the dollar store knockoff of Jessica Jones. Wow, that's harsh. I know. I'm sorry, Jessica. I watched it recently and was doing my pre-film struck shutdown cram. I don't know what that means. It was fine, I guess. It didn't leave much of a mark on me. Uh, Filmstruck was a kind of Netflix, but for oh, classic films. Oh, okay, so she was just watching watching it till it ended. Cramming yeah. as many classic movies in before well, it shut down. thankfully, she'll be happy to know that Criterion is starting its own streaming service soon. Yeah. Really? Yep. So, oh, that's fucking cool. Be on the lookout for that, mm. um, unless it's dropped already. No, this is going up in a couple days. I'm sure yeah, I don't think there. it's out yet, but it will happen at some point. All right, Jason, well, we got to end with uh, this little segment with how we, how we usually do. Yep. Uh, we're going to talk about... So this darling was number 83 mm-hmm. on the BFI Top 100. Number 83 on the AFI Top 100. The the revised list from 2007 was the film Titanic. Mm. So I want to know from you, Jason, which film do you think is better? Well, I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, on a strictly technical level, I have to say Titanic is a better film. I mean, it's longer, so it's got that going for it in terms of sheer number of minutes. With <laughs> with that uh, with that logic, I the mean, English but, Patient is one of the best films of all yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, but I was going to say the difference between Titanic and the English Patient is that Titanic's actually pretty damn good. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, yeah, I would have to say Titanic's probably a better movie. I'd be more likely to actually watch Titanic again, I think, than Darling. But there's nobody in Titanic that compares to Julie fucking Christie, my man. No, Julie Christie is amazing in Darling. I feel like she's better than the movie as a whole. What if we? What if we? Cat, what if we? recast her in Titanic and then digitally replaced um, I don't know uh, Kathy Bates say 
uh, uh, in that no. movie made her the unsinkable Molly Brown. No, no, no. We put her in the DiCaprio role. Hey, hey, that would certainly that. make Titanic a lot more interesting yeah. to me. Yeah, it does. <laughs> yeah. Be a lot more risque, right? Mm -hmm. in, the, in the teens, the 19s. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in the end of the 20th century, man. <laughs> I would also say Titanic is a better... F it's Yeah, I mean, I don't really think there's much of a comparison. It's a hard thing to compare two movies as vastly different as this. I'm not... I, I'm definitely not a Titanic hater. Like, mm. I have some friends that are just like, eh, it's boring, it's three hours. No, like, it, it, here's the thing about Titanic, and I'll say it quickly, just for the folks out there, so they know a little bit about me. Mm. I saw Titanic when I was 14, and uh, uh, um, the thing I, I really you noticed... Off. Yeah, I jerked off totally, but... <laughs> And it was only partly to Leo. Um, the thing I noticed most about that movie is that it was the first movie I had ever watched where I felt it like it literally had enough time to tell its story. Like by the end of it, I was like, "Hmm, that's good." It didn't wear out its welcome, but no. I also didn't. I wasn't left wanting for more. Yeah, no, it's. It, I. I mean, we've already watched like what two, three-hour movies mm. on this podcast yeah. with many more to go. And some, like Kwai, just fly by, and some, like The English Patient, you really have to work at. Well, with that being said, let's get to it. Bridge on the River Kwai. Oh, it's absolutely smashing. And for those of you who want to know if there were any lyrics in that, well, there sure are. Hitler has only got one ball going, has two but very small. Himmler has something similar, and Paul Goebbels has no balls at all. Uh, yes, yeah, so Bridge on the River Kwai, number 11 on the British Film Institute, top 100 British films of all time, 19 mm -hmm. as compiled in 1999. This is, uh, by quite a margin, it's the highest rated movie we've talked about so far. Absolutely. I think before this was 27, which yeah. is another David Lean movie, Dr. Zhivago. This is our second David Lean movie, our second Alec Guinness movie, mm. our second Jack Hawkins movie. Yes, sir. And so let's talk about this. We have a lot to talk about, so Jason, let's get into this plot. Does William Holden appear in any other British films on this list? None. Damn it. Okay. <laughs> so this film opens up with some birds. You like birds, don't you, Brendan? I got a bird. That's right, you do. So you're in for something amazing. Guys, I'm referring to my penis. Also, he, I apologize for my voice. I'm going through puberty. Yes, he Slash, is. I have a cold. And if he would put his penis away and stop showing it off and waving it around, we could get to this movie. Thank you, Brenda. Sorry. It's inappropriate. So, so the movie opens up. We got a train. The train's got a machine gun on it. The train, I'm not sure what model train. I'm just going to drag this out as long as possible. No. <laughs> no. So, so, the train, so the train's going along the track. We see the track is being built. That track is being built by POWs, by British soldiers, and Dutch is, soldiers, American and soldiers. And what is a POW? A POW, Brendan, for those that don't know, is a prisoner of war. And explain to the good folks what a war is. A war is when two <laughs> nations get into an armed conflict with each other, nope. usually over territory or I uh, regret, resources. I regret everything. Sometimes religion. Okay. But in this case, it was a a total war and a world so, war, as a it world were. war as it were. The second one, the second one. 
Not the third one, not the first one. The oh, second good one. lord, we have to get through this plot. <laughs> so, I'm, all, I'm, I'm a bad influence. So the train is, is bringing in troops uh, uh, and picking up troops. And, uh, well, th- it's not clear, but I assume that they're bringing the British troops in, although they eventually do have to march to the camp because, the you know, obviously the railroad only goes so far. So these British troops, uh, led by Colonel Nicholson, played by Alec Guinness, uh, are a unit of British soldiers that had surrendered during the fall of Singapore. They'd been ordered to surrender by high command, and now they were in custody of the Japanese. And the Japanese are bringing them inland to Burma, to, uh, or actually Siam, I believe. Uh, it may be different. No, it's, it's Siam. They bring them to Siam, which is modern-day Thailand, to build uh, uh, a railway and bridge so that the Japanese can connect Rangoon and Bangkok. Great city. Rangoon, uh, like the like the pasta sauce. Yeah, well, that's where pasta Rangoon, like that's where it comes from. Oh, uh, you're, I believe it's called Yangon nowadays. I started it like an asshole, and you came up with a real fact. Yeah, no, no. Uh, Go on. Burma, which is now Myanmar, Yangon, <laughs> which was Rangoon, Bangkok. So they march in. So they they show up. They see the camp, and and of course Nicholson, being a super British officer, decides he's going to march them into the camp and put on a little bit of a show for the the Japanese colonel. So they all come marching into the Colonel Bogey March, which you just heard. Um, in full unit formation. Now, these guys are sick. These guys are hungry. They're injured. Uh, some of them don't even have shoes, but Nicholson still marches them in, proud British soldiers, and they form up in front of Colonel Saito at Camp 16. Colonel Saito, played by Sesue Hayakawa, a great Japanese actor whom I literally have seen in nothing else, but I hear he was a star. We'll talk about that later. Yeah. So, uh, Saito stands up on a, on a little box, and begins to give a speech. Uh, During that speech, he insists that everybody is going to help build this bridge, no matter whether you're an enlisted man or an officer. This is a sticking point for Colonel Nicholson, because the Geneva Convention uh, on the Treatment of Prisoners of War states very clearly that officers are not required to do manual labor. They command the troops that do the manual labor. Uh, Now, if you know anything about history in World War II, you'll know that the Japanese didn't have a particularly strong regard for the rules of war. And in fact, at some point, Saito uh, says, Don't talk to me about the rules! This is war! Because it is. Uh, but there are certain rules that uh, the British and allies would abide by, and sometimes the Germans and Japanese would abide by them. But also, you have to understand, Saito has a very dim view of these troops because they surrendered. In Japanese culture, especially at the time, the imperial Japanese culture, surrender was tantamount to, like, the worst dishonor. You would kill yourself before yeah. you would be taken captive by the enemy. Exactly. Harry Carrier. Yeah. Uh, so, not, not the baseball announcer. No. So he doesn't give a shit uh, uh, that they were ordered to surrender. To him, they're all just fucking just slave labor as far as he's concerned. Nicholson approaches him, and they have a discussion about it. And uh, Saito doesn't say anything and goes back inside. The next day, they come back, form up for parade again. Saito tells everybody they're going to work. And again, Nicholson comes up and basically gets in his face and is like, you'll see the Geneva Convention. And he pulls it out of his pocket and starts showing Saito where it says in the Geneva Convention. And then Saito grabs it and fucking slaps him. And he slaps the fucking shit out of him. He hits him so hard with this little pamphlet that he draws blood. I don't know if Nicholson has a predilection for nosebleeds, but holy shit. That shouldn't have happened. (laughs) So, uh, Nicholson insists that they will not work. They're officers. It's not going to happen. So, Saito sends the men off to go work and lets the officers stand there and uh, sends out a command to the Japanese troops and they roll a truck up. And on the back of the truck is a goddamn machine gun. And he's like, okay, are you going to work or am I going to have to cut you all down right here? Because I will. Uh, They don't move because they're British and strong and proud and they just stand there. And he's about to give the order when our medical doctor for the camp 
Cur- uh, Doctor Clifton runs Cl- out, oh, yeah, uh, and yeah. and basically desperately asks them not to do this because and points out that hey, I'm here and all these patients. Uh, all these patients are in the camp. We're all seeing you do this. If you kill them, you're gonna have to kill all of us too. And even for the Japanese, that's really hard to justify murdering like sixty people for no reason. Unarmed people. Unarmed too, people and sick people. People with no arms. Yeah, people with no arms, no legs, no heads, just torsos. <laughs> This movie's weird, you guys. Directed by Pink Floyd. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, Saito seems realizes he's not making any headway with these guys. So, after letting them stand out in the sun for a while, he comes back and sends them to sends all the officers to the punishment uh, hut, which is a small hut. Uh, and then he sends Saito to his own little area called the oven. Nicholson. He meant to say Nicholson. So they put him in this this small box, basically to roast him in the sun and let him eventually just get so just suffer so much that he'll give in to Colonel Saito. Yeah. Um elsewhere in the camp, we learn that there is a US naval commander <laughs> played by William Holden. Yes, uh, the only American actor in this film. The only American uh, actor in this film. The nurse, I think so. The nurse later? Is she American? I don't remember. Okay, well, I think I'm pretty sure he's the only American in this film. He he's certainly the most prominent one. Mm. Uh he is a he's a commander in the US Navy or so he says and he has been discussing the possibility of escape with some of his... Uh, there's a British young British man and another fellow. They've been talking about getting out of there. Now, what you have to understand about this particular POW camp is that most POW camps have, you know, uh, fences and watchtowers and barbed wire and all that shit. This one doesn't because they're in the middle of the fucking jungle. If you try to escape, good luck. Yeah, it's an island. <laughs> You're, yeah, it's, it, well, no, it's not an island. He That's... says it's an island in the jungle is what he means. Oh, okay. It's so surrounded by thick jungle that to actually get anywhere meaningful would take a long time and you'll probably die of disease or get attacked by something in the process. Yeah, they don't even have snipers or anything. No, like, they don't need Protecting the, uh, the prison camp. They don't need it. So he discusses that possibility of escape because he's he's basically been there and he's been bribing bribing the guards so they'll put him on sick duty and just trying to do as little work as possible. But as as we remember that it is the responsibility, like under under international law, it is the responsibility of a captured soldier to escape, and that's what he does, or attempts to. Uh, he and the three guys run out, and two of them get caught and shot immediately. And he, I think he actually gets shot. Either way, he falls off a cliff into some water. Yeah. And then goes downstream, and they just assume he's dead. So we'll come back to him. Okay, back at the camp, Nicholson and the officers are still making their point, and the rank and file are starting to get rowdy. They're fucking off and sabotaging everything they can. They're doing as little work as possible to keep the Japanese uh, uh, annoyed, I suppose. Saito is getting very desperate at this point because he needs this bridge done. He's got a strict deadline. I think it's February at this point, and he has to have the bridge done by May. That's a lot. So he tries a number of different things to get Nicholson to capitulate. He threatens him, says that he's going to basically punish everybody else if he doesn't do it. Yeah, his threat is like, I'm going to make all the infirmed work on the bridge and then they'll basically die because they're sick. When they die, it is your responsibility. your fault. And and Nicholson, his whole thing is, if I budge on this... Mm -hmm. Then he knows he'll get, he can get me other ways. He sends Doctor Clifton up to tell. Uh, to tell that, Nicholson that's that's this. what I get. That's that's right. That's yeah. kind of what it is, right? Yeah. Is uh, he says if I, it's not just the fact that he doesn't want to work. Yeah, it's the fact that if he lets him push him on this yeah. with the Geneva Convention, then Saito knows he can get away with other stuff. Yeah, and he's just gonna get well, worse and, and worse. It, and it's cultural too. It's and it's all, it's cultural. It's military, and it's the idea of yeah being pushed around by a prisoner. You don't want to be pushed around by a prisoner. And in Japanese culture, saving face is a very important. Uh, very important thing that is actually mentioned in the book a lot, but we'll get to that later. 
So he's trying all the ways he can to save face in this situation. He wants to be able to, to give Nicholson what he needs to work. So he brings him in, sits him down, says, uh, tell you what, when I said officers had to work, I only meant I only meant the rest of them, not you. Clearly, you're the commander. You don't have to work. And he's like, since, no. Since, since we're here at this point, uh, why don't we just play a little bit of this scene? All right. So this is the dinner scene where he uh, Saito has this meeting with him. He tries. He's trying to rationalize. He's trying to come up with some way to get. He's also trying to ply him with food and drink and cigars. Right. And I'll just mention that as soon as you hear the after and and, and Nicholson is not eating anything of his food. He's not drinking any of his wine no. until the end of this clip. When I said all officers must work, naturally I never meant you, the commanding officer. My orders were only intended for officers below. None of my officers will do manual labor. Please, I was about to say, I have been thinking the matter over and decided to put majors and above on administrative duties, leaving only the junior officers to lend a hand. I'm afraid not. The convention's quite clear on that point. Do you know what will happen to me if the bridge is not ready in time? I haven't the foggiest. I'll have to kill myself. What would you do if you are me? Well, I suppose if I were you, I'd have to kill myself. And then he drinks the fucking wine. Just, it's just like that no, it's is whiskey. He just he just yeah. puts back an entire tumbler of whiskey after he gets his little. That is in. the moment. That is the exact. If you had to pinpoint the moment in this movie where the power shifted, that is the fucking moment. Absolutely. And it's crazy. Like that's that is that is, that's one of the best. I, I know we're gonna talk about this later, yeah. but I just want to say that is one of the greatest scenes I think I've ever seen in a movie. That is Such like a... acting at a level unheard of. Just the just the the physicalness of of both performances mm-hmm. and just the writing is yeah. so good and it's so like every line matters. You and it, it's so I mean you could just see Saito getting more desperate every time he tries something, just trying to kind of keep himself under control, but but get this done because he so needs to get this fucking bridge done. Well, so much so that what does he do next? So next, <laughs> nobody, voice, he figures it next. out. He, he comes up. He comes up with a way to kind of save a little bit of face, and he decides that because uh, they are around the anniversary of a particularly famous battle during the Russo-Japanese War in 1905. The the Vince Russo-Japanese War? Yes. (laughs) Yo, bro. We're going to stop these Japanese guys, bro. Uh, I think he would have said something a lot worse. Probably. I'm glad you didn't. I uh, know. I'm, I'm a good man. Uh, <laughs> well, not... so is he. He's a, he's a born-again Christian, so oh, you know he's a good man. Oh, shit. Obviously. Uh, so, yeah. So, so because of this victory during the Russo-Japanese War, he has decided that he will give a general amnesty to, uh, to the officers and allow that they no longer have to work. And, and so, basically, you're saying a general amnesty, which is... Uh... Just explain, just tell people. Tell the well, folks. Just in, I mean, a, an amnesty, like, like a bas- break. basically, yeah, a it's pardon. like a break. It's like a pardon, a break. He's just like, you know what? We'll forget about everything that happened. Tell you what, in honor of this day, I'm gonna be nice. I'm gonna say that you and your officers don't have to work. Anymore. He's basically saying, do we just become best friends? Yeah, yeah, and and this of course elates uh, Colonel Nicholson because but he, he hides won. it. He oh, hides yeah. it well. well. He's British. He can't express emotion. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, nor, nor certainly can Colonel Saito because he's Japanese. So they, they have a moment of staring at each other and they go about their business. 
Saito, or, or rather, Nicholson is very happy. Saito, not so much. Saito breaks down crying in his yeah. room. This is such a big deal to him and his personal honor that he is sacrificed in to get this bridge made because he needs to get the bridge done. No matter what, his honor doesn't matter. The the like shit like that doesn't matter. The bridge needs to be finished. Right. So now he's now Nicholson immediately takes charge of the situation, Brendan. He starts making plans. They start drawing up things. He's talking to... He's, he's making demands. He's making he's demands. He's like, can we have some tea? Maybe we yeah, can have yeah. some dinner. Send us a cup of tea. Perhaps we could continue working through dinner. Uh, so they he takes uh, Reeves and Hughes out, who are his two kind of right-hand men. Both are not military men. No. Yeah, Reeves was a was an engineer and built bridges, so he's kind of the key, key yeah. guy in this. You don't see them as much. I'm, I've been reading the book, so they get a little more screen time. Well, page time in the book, I suppose. <laughs> Um, so, but Nicholson dives in, they're, they're checking it out. They're seeing what's shitty. Um, so they decide they got to completely reorganize everything. But one of the things they notice too, is that the bridge is built on some really swampy ground. Like it, it, the, they can't sink the poles down to hit bottom. They put the poles in and they just keep sinking. So the first thing they need to do is move the bridge down the river to where there's bedrock. Nicholson is full on board for doing this. He's going to do it because he wants to show the Japanese. He wants to show Colonel Saito what British officers can do, what British soldiers can do, um, what Western civilization really is capable of. He wants to build this bridge as basically a fuck you to them to be like, we made this. Um, now, Dr. Clifton points out like, Cl- Clifton. Sorry, Clifton. I keep calling him Clifton, <laughs> goddammit. Dr. Clifton uh, makes the suggestion that, hey, should we be building a really good bridge? Because these guys are our enemy and maybe we shouldn't be aiding the enemy uh, with this bridge. And Nicholson's like, no, we've got to make a point. We're going to do it. And yeah, he says we're bordering on treason. Yeah. So because like, yes, we should look like we're working, but do we have to do a good job is what he's saying. Honestly, Clifton, there are times when I don't understand you at all. I'll try to make myself clear, sir. The fact is, what we're doing could be construed as... Forgive me, sir. Collaboration with the enemy. Perhaps even as treasonable activity. Are you all right, Clifton? We are prisoners of war. We haven't the right to refuse work. I understand that, sir. But must we work so well? Must we build them a better bridge than they could have built for themselves? If you had to operate on Saito, would you do your best or would you let him die? Would you prefer to see this battalion disintegrate in idleness? Would you have it said that our chaps can't do a proper job? Don't you realize how important it is to show these people that they can't break us in body or in spirit? Take a good look, Clifton. One day the war will be over. And I hope that the people who use this bridge in years to come will remember how it was built and who built it. Not a gang of slaves, but soldiers, British soldiers, Clifton, even in captivity. Yes, sir. You're a fine doctor, Clifton, but you've a lot to learn about the army. Now, here's the thing about Nicholson, and we'll talk about this, about this a little bit better, but in the book, Nicholson is more of a satirical character, and one of those things that carries over into the movie is his almost slavish devotion to, like, principles and order and rules. And because his unit was ordered to surrender, he doesn't feel that... He, he feels that if they don't help them build the bridge, if they don't help them in the camp, that they are violating their orders, which is a weird, logical runaround to make, but it's one of those things, I think, that is keeping him sane and allows him to keep his men sane by focusing themselves on something. Meanwhile, while this is all going down, Shears, turns out, is still alive. Should, uh, we should mention Shears. We didn't even talk oh, about Shears. Oh, we didn't make his... So, no, we talked about We him, talked about we the American, but his name is Shears. His the, name is Shears. The, the American uh, naval commander. The American naval by, commander. Uh, William Holden. 
Absolutely. Shears, yes. uh, he fell off the cliff into the water and he drifted down the river and he was picked up by some locals, some Siamese, who nursed him back to health and, and have fed no, him. And have no lines. Have no lines whatsoever. <laughs> uh, they, they, but, but they, it's a real English patient situation. Absolutely. They, uh, <laughs> they nurse him back to health. They give him a, a sarong and a, and a necklace of flowers and they send him off on a raft they made. But quickly he runs out of food and water and then tries to drink the river water. And basically that's dysentery. I yeah, think. basically just gets the shits at that point. I mean, we don't see that on screen. I have to assume based on the faces uh, again, he's making. There are two movies we've done where we could have watched <laughs> someone shit themselves to death, and it still hasn't happened. Doesn't happen in trade spotting. So he passes out on the boat. Is there shit in trade spotting? Uh, there's a lot of shit. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. All right, let's when roll. When he goes into the toilet, oh let's, man, let's roll now. All right, let's do it. <laughs> so yeah, but but he passes out on the boat, and we cut away. So we don't know what's happened to him at this point. Well, I, I should probably just say he. He at some point they he's picked up by a ship and he's taken to Ceylon, which is modern day Sri Lanka. Well, yeah, like why don't we just well, let's go through his story though? We'll just, we'll just well, try to set him up, yeah, because we're almost to where he's got to be. I mean, it goes his is kind of yeah. a through line to the rest it's of. It's not it. like I'm trying to do a direct translation of the script. Yeah, here. yeah, yeah. So he um, ends up he ends up basically uh, on this uh, like beach. Well, he ends up in Sri Lanka, Sri Lanka. At, a, at a commando school, right? And turns out that uh, I believe in the book they're called Force Three Sixteen. Uh, he's training there. And Force 316 says, you just washed up on shore. Da, 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 da. Yeah. Wrestling. Uh, so anyway, while he's there, he uh, meets up with uh, uh, Major Warden, played by our old friend Jack Hawkins, whom we, you may remember as the crazy preacher in Zulu. Yes, playing a di- very different role very here. Very different role here. Uh, Major Warden is, is the commander of this, uh, of this team. Uh, he's an explosives expert, especially with plastic explosives. And... He sits down with uh, Shears and suggests that perhaps Shears may be interested in going back. And Shears is like, what? No, I, I don't want to go back there. He's like, well, you're, you're, you know the area better than we do. We have no idea. And we could really use your help, old friend. And he's like, I don't really want to. And then he gets desperate. And he tells him, look, I, I'm not actually a commander in the U.S. Navy. I'm an enlisted man. I just, my name's not even Shears. I just grabbed this guy's uniform and put it on because I thought the Japanese would treat me better, which they didn't. Which, I gotta say, I was blown away by yeah. that twist. Because yeah. I, I, like, going into this, I knew there was a bridge. Yep. And I knew there was Alec Guinness mm-hmm. and a Japanese guy. Yep. That's it. That's it. I didn't know anything about the plot. Uh, so seeing that Shears... Uh, William Holden was not actually a naval commander mm-hmm. was yeah I think that was a really good twist and once we get through this plot there's little hints of it and I yep. want to talk about later yeah we'll yep. talk about well just how he acts first off just he's not off there's little, there's, clearly there's little scri- uh, script hints too uh, but but Warden informs him that they've already talked to the U.S. government, and weirdly, the U.S. government is cool with them uh, attaching uh, Shears to their unit and uh, going with them because they know because they know they know what he did they and they what, know what happened. They know um, what the fuck is up. Yeah, they're so basically any, like you can't take him home to the states as a hero because he's impersonated an officer. Yeah. So there's no way we could spin that. Even though he survived the sinking of the USS Houston, which yeah. uh, I looked into, there was a big battle and everything. That was a real ship that actually sunk. So they they did go historically accurate. And on William that Holden case. was on it. So basically, yeah. So basically, now Shears has no choice. He agrees to join the team, um, and they start getting ready. Uh, they the, the team ends up being a guy named Chapman, uh, Warden himself, 
uh, Shears, and, and then a young Canadian guy named Joyce, who's who, from Montreal. Who I was looking up because it's a very, it's very depressing. This movie was made in 1957, so unfortunately, a lot of these actors are no longer with us. Pretty much all of them, I would say, except for the young feller that plays Joyce. Joyce? Yeah, he's still yeah. alive. He's still alive, but he's like, uh, gotta like be in his 85 yeah. or something. Yeah, <laughs> but he's only like, he's only like 24 when this movie came out. So, so, so the bridge is starting to get behind schedule, mm. and. Nicholson is as anxious as Saito is to finish this bridge because he's thrown himself so hard into it. Um, so he talks to Clifton. Clifton. Uh, Clifton. 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 I have it written as Clifton, that's why. <laughs> Fuck! So he talks to Clifton about it, and he says, and this is the important, this is this is the linchpin of the movie as far as I'm concerned, because this deals with the mental state of Nicholson. He says to uh, Clifton that they're having trouble meeting schedule, and I've even asked the officers to toss in and give a hand. And Clifton's like, you asked the officers to do work? And he's like, oh yes, they volunteered. And he's it's like, that was the whole reason you spent the time in that oven. You went to the fucking, to the wall for those principles. And now you're willing to abandon them because you want to get the fucking bridge done. This is the thing about Nicholson, and I can't quite figure out, is he a guy who is He's principled, but only principled to the principles that matter in the immediate situation. I will answer you by thinking I think David Lean is mocking the very idea of war. Yeah, like I think this is one. Of, I think this is very much an anti-war film, and I think having him be so indebted to his own principles, he's mocking that at the same time. The and, director is, and that comes from the book too. Where, as I say, and we'll explain why later, but but. Nicholson is a much more satirical character of yeah. what British officers are supposed to be or what they're thought to be. So, you know, Clif- Clifton has some real concerns. He is there. the moral center He's of the this moral movie, center honestly. Of this movie. He's the one guy that seems to be like... Cause in the, okay, and here's the thing. In the book, Clifton is described as a man who has the gift of seeing problems from all angles. Even though he has certain assumptions and judgments, he's very able to kind of look at everything from all angles and get a, a rounded view of it. So that yeah. makes sense in the context of the movie as well. And it's almost like, it's interesting that they make him, the, that he's the medic too, yeah. because he's the medic and the moral center. So Absolutely. it's almost like he's trying to heal everyone mentally and physically. Our commandos, meanwhile, are dropping in. Now, this is a funny bit. Uh, oh, yeah. They, so this is this is, uh, this is is Shears and the men. They're Shears, coming in. Shears, Warden, Joyce, and Chapman. Att- in an attempt to blow up the bridge. Yeah. Now, the, the, the funny bit we didn't mention earlier, I just want to mention quickly. Um, when So Shears has never done a parachute drop before. Yeah. And they asked the, I think, Colonel Green, who's their commander. I think they asked Colonel Green if they can get some training jumps in for him. And so he calls up the, the base, says... Really? That's what? That's really what you think? That's your professional opinion? Okay. And so he tells them, basically, look, if, if we were to train you, uh, there'd be about a 50% chance you'd die on the first jump, there'd be an 80% chance you'd die on the second jump, and you'd pretty much be assured to die on the third jump. So, tell you what, we'll go with the odds and you just do one jump and hope for the best. So that's what they do. They don't and, even train them. And in a darkly funny moment, when they're all doing, or they're all parachuting, the fourth person dies. Yeah. Chapman uh, Chapman gets caught in a tree and... Ooh, by the way, we don't really care about Chapman. We, no. we heard him talk like twice. Yeah, he said like three lines. So, so so it's Warden and Shears and Joyce and they are... They hook up with some Siamese resistors who are more than willing to help them go fuck with the Japanese. And some female water bearers. Some female water bearers that they love to hit on and flirt with. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, at some point they stop and frolic a bit in some water, but some Japanese troops show up. So they run up onto the hill and then murder the two Japanese troops and then chase a third one, which Joyce um, cannot do by the way. Well, Joyce, Joyce chases after him. They're he, kind of he, stealthing through the woods and Joyce chases. He freezes. After, he freezes. Cause earlier they had uh, asked him, 
Uh, I think it's Colonel Green had asked him, Joyce, do you think that, uh, given the moment, and you could kill a man in cold blood? And he's like, uh, You Guinness? <laughs> well, he, he says similar, he sounds very similar, yeah, that, does, that yeah, type yeah. of accent. And Joyce is like, well, I don't really know, sir. I'd have to, I, I won't know till I'm in the moment. And then Morden's like, oh, at least he's honest. I mean, we all don't know until we're in the moment. And then he, and then that moment he does, he In can't. that moment he freezes and yeah. he can't do it. So luckily Morden's there and Morden takes care of him. Unfortunately, he also gets shot in the foot. Gets shot in the foot. No, and isn't there like pieces place. of bone on the ground after that? Uh, I didn't notice because they that. they show like a shot on the ground and like blood and like little things and I thought there was like, makes sense sh- like shavings of like his bone. I like or to something. think that David Lean was that gory in 1957. That's awesome. I mean, yeah. So Warden's injured and he's slowing them down. Uh, now with these commando missions, the general rule is is that you don't. It's, it's it's not a you leave anybody behind situation. So yeah. we have a clip for that. Uh, well, actually. Um, this is yeah. So, so yeah, it's not a leave anybody behind situation. Warden tells them go, yeah. leave me. He's like leave me. But move. this is like the ultimate. So William Holden has like the or uh, Shears, I guess, has like the ultimate anti point of view to basically um, Nicholson and Warden. Mm-hmm. And this is the scene I think really uh, exemplifies that. You can't study the layout of the bridge after dark. You've got to get there before sundown, sir. When the job's done, who knows if we can return by this route or, or whether we could find you if we did. If you were in my shoes, Joyce, I wouldn't hesitate to leave you here, and you know that. He doesn't know it, but I do. You'd leave your own mother here if the rules call for it. You'll go on without me. That's an order. You're in command now, Shears. I won't obey that order. You make me sick with your heroics. There's a stench of death about you. You carry it in your pack like the plague. Explosives and L-pills, they go well together, don't they? And with you, it's just one thing or the other. Destroy a bridge or destroy yourself. This is just a game, this war. You and that Colonel Nicholson, you're two of a kind. Crazy with courage. For what? How to die like a gentleman. How to die by the rules. When the only important thing is how to live like a human being. I'm not going to leave you here to die, Warden. Because I don't care about your bridge, and I don't care about your rules. If we go on, we go on together. Yeah, he's, he's it's almost a very stereotypically American perspective. It's like, damn the rules, let's get this done. Well, and it's also very, it's, it's, it's anti-war. Yeah. Because it's, it's sheer saying, to hell with this idea of like, leave a man behind just so we could do the job. A man's life is worth more yeah. than blowing up a fucking bridge. He's, he's much more humanist, I suppose, in he that is, way. Yeah, he's, yeah. I would say that. Well, yeah, and you can tell because he has a lot... Yeah, he's a very much more emotional person than uh, Nicholson. The thing is interesting, too, about Shears is that he starts out very blasé. Yeah. And at this point, he's just like, I've had it. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm fed up with everything. Like, both sides, you're driving me nuts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, they drag Warden with them, and they eventually do get to the campsite and begin scouting out to plant the charges. Um, they, they go down into the water at, at night. Now, okay, now I have to mention this quickly. There is a fuck ton of day for night in this movie, and it's all terrible. <laughs> I love this movie. It looks beautiful, but man, they use so much day for night. Now, I get it. The jungle was probably really fucking dark at night, and they probably weren't able to film anything worthwhile. But so in this day for night scene, they go, they attach the charges to the, the things of the bridge. They run the cables under the water. Everything is peachy, but they can't just set a timer and go. They gotta wait because they wait a, for a train. The to... train is coming, and there's a train. I think it has dignitaries on it. It would be a good get to knock that train out as well as the bridge. Yes. 
So they set up, they start watching the bridge. Uh, at this point, the bridge is done. Nicholson is very proud of it. They put a sign up. They see him through the through the glasses. The putting sign the sign is crazy. The sign is like this. Sold this bridge was constructed by soldiers of the British Army. That's that's crazy to me. Well, it, it's not crazy. He's proud of their work. He wants them to be remembered for building this bridge. I especially know, like, given how shitty the other Japanese bridges given are. Given the given the purpose of this bridge, though, yes. I I just feel like it's so it's I I get I, mean, I know why he's doing it, but to me it's just like. It's, All it, right. it's part morale, I imagine, but also part his mental state. That yeah, that, so well, I think that's focused part of on this is. bridge that he's lost sight of the war. Almost. Well, that's what I mean. He's not seeing the forest for the trees. No, like exactly. he's, he's just like, oh yeah, we accomplished this, but what did you actually accomplish here? Single-mindedly devoted to building the bridge and keeping his men busy. Essentially, yeah, exactly. Uh, so he's walking around. They're getting ready to open the bridge. They've got troops up there. There, there there's going to be a color guard and a band and everything. Um, and he's walking around the bridge, checking it out. He, he oh, I, I forgot to mention at some point he does have a little moment with Saito on the bridge. Would you like to hear it? Would you like to hear it? Would you like to hear it, folks? Well, we can uh, play that for you. Saito uh, doesn't really say much here, but listens as uh, Colonel Nicholson talks. I've been thinking. Tomorrow it will be 28 years to the day that I've been in the service. 28 years in peace and war. I don't suppose I've been at home more than 10 months in all that time. Still, it's been a good life. I love India. I wouldn't have had it any other way. But there are times... Suddenly you realize you're nearer the end than the beginning. And you wonder... You ask yourself what the sum total of your life represents. What difference your being there at any time made to anything. Or if it made any difference at all, really. Particularly in comparison with other men's careers. I don't know whether that kind of thinking is very healthy, but I must admit I've had some thoughts on those lines from time to time. Now, I want to mention, too, during that speech, the camera is on his back the entire time, so we're not even seeing the emotion in his face. Because it's the one, it's probably one of the few moments he actually gets emotional. Yeah. Uh, there's another one coming up, obviously. But, and then and then the thing is, too, is that um, while this is happening, as soon as the speech is done, he drop, he accidentally drops his stick yeah. in, in the water. Walking stick. And he's like, oh, blast. That to me is like he just lost the last semblance of his sanity. Yeah, like that. That's I. I don't know if that's uh, that's too deep or whatever. But like that's just what this is what I'm thinking. Like his last. It definitely connection, signifies something in him. It's like his last connection stick. to being a British, a British, sol- a, so being a British soldier. <laughs> okay. Because, I mean, yeah. he's going farther and farther away from that. As much as he says he's living by his principles, he's going further and further and away. And we'll see. And, and we see this because as the bridge is getting ready to open and he is look at walking along doing a final inspection checking things out he looks over the side overnight since the uh, overnight uh, since the charges have been, since the charges uh, have been placed, placed the, wa- yeah. the water level of the river had lowered substantially yeah and Nicholson could see the wires tracing out from the bridge and he says something along the lines of like there's something funny going on and there's something funny here and he immediately runs to Sido <laughs> right? <laughs> the fucking girl, he's like, there's something wrong, there's something funny going on with the bridge. Like, this is this is where I'm like, what are you doing? So he grabs the colonel, 
and they they start walking along down the river and he finds the he finds the cable and begins to follow it unbeknownst to him Joyce is behind a rock about 100 meters away from them when they come down on the beach with the plunger, uh, waiting to blow the bridge up, waiting for the train to show up. Uh, uh, Warden is up on a hill with a mortar, keeping an eye on things, and... uh, Shears. Shears is across the river, keeping an eye on things. Basically covering Joyce. Covering Joyce, yeah. Yeah. Okay, actually, can I just mention something real real quick? Hayakawa, or... That's the actor's name. Sasue Hayakawa. That's the actor's name. Saito has his knife on him like he specifically puts it in his uniform was his plan to kill nicholson after you know what i wouldn't be surprised if he wanted to eliminate that problem they almost set it up like that yeah. like after that bridge was done he was gonna kill him and he kind of walks behind nicholson the whole time yeah yeah just keeping an eye on him but um okay so yeah they walk up him and Saito to walk so up they're, to the beach. they're following the line along and they pick it up and eventually yeah uh, and then they, they find it and then, then as they're pulling as they're pulling along on the line you could see Joyce has to grab the plunger to keep the plunger from flying out, and this is when this is when the shit happens. Yeah, this is when shit starts. Fucking uh, Nicholson's like, "Do you have a knife, old chap? I gotta cut this wire." Yeah, and fucking Joyce comes out like a commando, stabs yeah. and kills Saito. Saito just right, just right into him, stabs him and kills him, and then immediately says to because uh, Nicholson looks shocked. He's like, "British Army, sir, commandos, we're trying to blow the bridge up." He's like, "Blow up the bridge! Blow up the bridge!" And he he attacks Joyce. He attacks his own. He attacks his own man. And meanwhile, and calls for help from the Japanese. He's he's shouting help to the Japanese. So at this point, their cover's blown, and Shear starts screaming, "Blow it up! Blow the bridge up! Kill him! Kill him! Kill him!" But he can't. But uh, he can't get out from under him and get shot by the Japanese soldiers. So Joyce is dead. So Joyce is dead. As fuck. So, of course, at that point, Shears is like, well, fuck this shit. So Shears starts running across the water trying to get to him. As Shears is running across the water, he gets shot by the Japanese. Shears is dead. Well, he's not dead quite away. He falls down, and then Nicholson turns around and sees him and goes, you! And then Shears looks up at him and goes, you! And it's almost like, it's almost like, and there's, and there's fucking Nicholson's humanity that just died. And there's Nicholson's humanity. And Nicholson just has a moment, and he just looks shocked, and he goes, what have I done? And then the moment that confused me is that Warden then is like, well, fuck, I have to, I have to kill him. Yeah. But he fires a mortar. Fires a mortar. But well, I assume he wants to take out Shears too, because he apologizes later for it, but he has to, he can't leave them alive. But he doesn't hit them. Well, it, it, it hits nearby and the concussion hits uh, Nicholson and knocks him down. But it, but that kills him, does it not? No. He, it, it hits him and knocks him down and he immediately stands back up and stumbles and then trips and falls onto the plunger. And the bridge goes and up. And the bridge fucking blows up. Wait, so Nicholson is not dead? No. Well, because he gets back up, right? Because he, he gets hit by the concussion, he falls down, and then he kind of stands back up and is very woozy, and then just kind of stumbles over and falls on top of the plunger, and the bridge blows but then, up. But he doesn't get up after that, though. No, he's dead at that point. That's what I mean. So he died from uh, the concussion? Yeah, the concussion, yeah. It wouldn't have killed him necessarily right away, but pretty fast. It, okay. That happened a lot in World War One, okay. as I understand, because of the shell, shell fire. I was confused about that, because yeah. I was like, it clearly didn't hit him. Yeah, it, yeah. and it, he may have gotten hit with some shrapnel or whatever in his back, but, I mean, obviously, we, it doesn't matter. He stays it's alive. 1957. Yeah, he, he stays alive long enough to fall on the plunger and blows the bridge up in one of the most amazing scenes in cinematic history because they actually blow a fucking bridge up. They have yeah. like nine cameras well, or something yeah, we pointed have... at this thing. Oh yeah, we we'll get some, there. There's some stuff. But at, and as everything's going down, uh, <clears throat> the movie basically ends, well, Warden apologizes to the Siamese girls he's with for having to kill 
or to finish off Shears and and Joyce, because you know obviously they they're gonna die. You can't let them be taken alive at all. And the movie finishes with uh, with uh, Clifton uh, up on a hill, just going madness. This is madness. Although a lot more subdued. Than yeah, that. not quite as much as I'm not. He's not pulling like a Charlton Heston, like it's made from people. It's more of just like people. madness. Madness. Yeah. And our movie ends. And that is the bridge on the river. Bridge Kwai. on the river Kwai. A bridge on the river Kwai. <laughs> I think it's just called bridge on the river Kwai. Now, would you, what, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, now, before we start getting too deep into this, I want to say, I started, it was only today, and I've only been about through maybe 20% of it, but I started reading The Bridge Over the River Kwai, which is, is the, that what the book is called? That's what the book is called. Okay. Written by Pierre Boulle, whom you may also know as the author of the novel, The Planet of the Apes, uh, oh, which it, it was actually based on a book, surprisingly, but um, he wrote this novel because he himself had served in the French army in World War II. Was it the French army? I mean, he's French. Also, sure. I don't know what point. I guess he would have been captured at some point, but there wasn't really a French army. I guess there was the Free French Army. Anyways, he gets captured by the Japanese, and so he experienced that. And Nicholson, in the book, as I've said, Nicholson is a more satirical character, kind of indicting that style of command. Um, and although, oddly, Boole based this portrayal on his experiences with French officers, not with British officers, but for the book, made him British. Right. Uh, which is interesting. But yeah, anyway, so so the book is... It's, uh, uh, the book is pretty racist. The, the book is more racist, certainly, than... Well, I don't know that the book is racist itself. I mean, certainly it could be Pierre Boulle, but he also was, you know, he was captured by the Japanese, so he experienced their, their kind of uh, approach to things. The Japanese in this movie, at least as far as I could see, are way less brutal than the Japanese actually were, number one. Uh, and in the book, certainly the characters are more than happy to say things like, this is a quote from Nicholson, at one point, he's talking to... Uh, this is in the to, book. This is in the book. He's talking to Clifton. He says, These people are, as I've always said they were, primitive people, as undeveloped as children, who've acquired a veneer of civilization too soon. Underneath it all, they're absolutely ignorant. They can't do a thing by themselves. Without us, they'd still be living in the age of sailing ships and wouldn't own a single airplane. Just children. Yet so pretentious of it as well. <laughs> yeah. Rough. I mean, yeah, not, they, they make not, a lot of references to the. Uh, he's not dropping the J word, but to I mean, the still. well, it's, I haven't read a, they have, they, They've used the, word, the the J word a few times. Uh, yeah. They refer to the Japanese as baboons, uh, as uncivilized, as savage. They talk about how superior Western culture is, Western civilization. So, but I mean, that was. I mean, certainly, you would not. It would not be crazy to hear people talking like that at the time at all, right? So it is, but but the movie takes a more uh, a more interesting tack. I also want to mention too in the book. Colonel Saito is an alcoholic. He drinks a he drinks a lot, and that huh. puts him into rages. And he's a much more he's much more all over the place in the book than he is in the movie. In the movie, he's he's I think he's as honorable as a Japanese officer as you can get. Uh, yeah, I would argue um, in the movie uh, Saito is obviously he's the the antagonist, mm-hmm. the villain. But I mean, is he that evil? No, he's, I mean he's, he's kind of his job. He's he's. He's maybe he's brutal. He's brutal. Certainly. He's brutal, but he's not. He's certainly no worse than if the British had someone as their prisoner of war. Maybe a little more so, but like in in the book, I want to mention. So in the movie, you remember we we see that initial speech from Saito, and then Nicholson reminds him about the Geneva Convention. He goes inside, and then they wait a day, and he comes back and tells them, "No, you're all going to be working anyways." Yeah. In the book, Saito gives that initial welcoming speech. Nicholson reminds him of I think in the book he says the Hague Convention on prisoners. Um, 
And Saito doesn't like that, but he doesn't say anything. And he goes back inside and basically starts drinking. And he starts drinking until he drinks himself into a fucking rage. And he gets so mad about it that he, he ends up passing out. And then when he wakes up in the morning, he goes out and gives an angry speech. And, and like every every three or four lines, he says, I hate the British. You guys are going to work and you're going to do this. And I hate the British so much. And you're going to get out there and you're going to build that bridge whether you like it or not. And I hate the British. He's way angrier. You know, it sounds almost like to me that the movie did a better job of rounding him out. Yeah, I think character. so. I think it was a better it was a better portrayal. I he mean, seems obviously, more stereotypically evil. Well, and by 1957, Japan was a was a pretty close vassal of the United States, essentially at that point. You know, you wanted to play well there. You didn't want to make the guy look too crazy. Uh, they, they and and also in the book, Major Shears, Major British. Shears is British. He is he is not in the camp. He is not mentioned until they talk about Force 316 going in to blow this bridge up. So And Force Force 316 says we just blew up your bridge. Yeah. Jason obviously just described the, the obviously this movie's based on a novel uh written by Pierre Boulle Pierre Boulle in 1952. Uh was picked up by a producer named Carl Foreman who you may remember I think he produced he also produced or wrote or something, Dr. Zhivago. Mm-hmm. I should have written that down, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure he produced Dr. Zhivago. He, in fact, had nothing to do with Dr. Zhivago. Uh, but he was interested in pursuing this. Uh, however, at the time, Carl Ford was living in England because he was being blacklisted in the United ah. States for being a communist sympathizer. It was that time, wasn't it? Yeah. So Carl Ford decides to write the first draft of the script. This will shock you. David Lean hated it. Nah. <laughs> uh, but the thing is... Uh, the script... Okay, this is what he said, okay? He said, I would only do the film if they threw away this terrible script by Carl Foreman. Uh, it originally started with an American submarine that was being depth-charged. It had nothing to do with the story at all, and I said, this is hopeless. Uh, Foreman then did a rewrite, and Lean hated it as well. <laughs> of course he did. So he just decided to take over the script himself. Uh, interestingly, uh, I have a little clip here of David Lean's writing style. He always liked to uh, scout a location before the writing began and then write in that location. What happens is that I sit down at my typewriter and I start at the beginning and I make a complete blueprint. I try to imagine what the finished movie is going to look like on the screen with cuts and everything. in I do it as I hope I'll see it. I know this is against a lot of the new school, of, uh, but I, I personally am very wary of improvisation. So he is a man who is a dictator on the set. I think mm. we've said that before. He is very much, this is my vision, this is my vision, this is my vision. Well, I mean, in the and, way he writes a script makes sense, because if he's the one directing it, it makes sense that he would write it in such a way that it was like very clear what he wanted. I mean, obviously when you're writing scripts, you don't want to be too specific because you want to allow the directors and the actors to have some room to play. Right. Um... Yeah, but I mean, it is very unusual to write a script like this, even yeah. if, even if the person's directing it. Yeah. T- you usually don't tend to do that until no. they look at it later and say, okay, how do we want to lay this yeah. out? But this is a man who he's like, literally, he sees the movie. He's already seen the movie in his head before he's even started. Yeah. yeah. So the other man that helped write this film was a man named Michael Wilson. Uh, Michael Wilson? He came on later. However, he was also being blacklisted. Yeah. So. Man, so- David Lean's going to stop working with commies. So here's the thing, Jason. Yeah. Uh, we'll get to the Oscar stuff later, obviously, but they did win Best Screenplay. Mm-hmm. However, it was so Carl Foreman and Michael Wilson uh, were given were the ones who ended up writing the script. Like David Lean did a draft, but I believe I believe it was it was the three of them that came up with something. Mm-hmm. Um, however, though, because those two were blacklisted, Pierre Boulle 
the author of the book yeah. was given the best screenplay Oscar hmm. because those two could not accept it. True enough. Uh, he had nothing to do with the script. <laughs> he didn't even. He barely even spoke English. Yeah. So apparently, David Lean was very upset about this, about the fact that the, he. Uh, he's against the blacklist as were many people at the time and he was also very upset that he wasn't given um a producing credit Mm. alongside his producing partner sam spiegel Mm. hilariously this led to a physical altercation between david lean and sam spiegel in which they used their oscar statues as weapons for christ's sake in the parking lot after the oscars Uh, now, you were asking about... Get over here, Sammy. I'll give you the old what for. <laughs> this is a real sword. <laughs> you were asking about, uh, William Holden. Yeah, okay, n- number one, uh, well, obviously they wanted to have an American in the movie because I'm sure they thought it would sell better. Well, because but, it, was made two, by, it was made by Columbia Pictures. Yeah. And number two, why the fuck is William Holden and Jack Warden, who are great actors, admittedly, build over Alec Guinness? I, I, I can't answer the Jack Warden, or Jack Hawkins. Or Hawkins. You're, you're, you're comparing... Sorry, I'm confusing the character with the actor. Yeah, Jack, Jack Hawkins. I don't know why it goes William Holden, Jack Hawkins, and then Alec Guinness, but I will tell you that William Holden is first because they wanted a huge American star. Mm-hmm. Columbia Pictures did. And when David Lean brought on William Holden, he was paid a million dollars plus percentages of the gross. Wow. Which, in 1957, that's insane. Yeah, that's nuts that he got that kind of deal. Uh, Points, Brendan. Points on the back end. So, uh, I also want to talk a little bit about Sesu Hayakawa, Mm -hmm. who plays uh, Saito in the movie. Apparently, he got along fine with David Lean, one of the very few people who did. Uh, he admitted that, although he admits in interviews that David Lean was slightly less than beloved uh, by a lot of his associates. He's a very polite man. Hayakawa, though, was actually brought out of retirement because he was a major silent film star mm-hmm. and actually starred in a, in a Cecil B. DeMille film from 1915. Oh, wow. So he was a he was a man. This is a man that was he was pioneer. Born in 18, really, 18, 1886 yep. He was born, so he was already seventy years old. I also want to mention too. I don't know if you uh, read this, but he early in his life he had I forget why. I, I guess because his parents wanted him to be uh, an, an like a Japanese officer, and he didn't want to go into the military. And he eventually <laughs> tried to kill himself. He, he tried to commit ritual suicide in the in his parents shed but they were able to break down the door with an axe and get him out of there and get him to the hospital before you know terrible things happen i did not know that so i'm glad i'm playing something a little lighter right now <laughs> um i took this from a little documentary about bridge on the river kwai uh take a listen to this i just think it's kind of amusing Sesu Hayakawa had a cameo in a Jerry Lewis film titled The Geisha Boy, where he does a parody of his role as Colonel Saito in The Bridge on the River Kwai. Jerry Lewis meets a young boy's grandfather, who's having a small bridge built on his property in the same style as the Kwai Bridge, and then Lewis and Hayakawa have this exchange. Uh, you know, you kind of remind me of, um... Oh, oh, oh but that doctor? The actor, yes. Oh, yes. Many people think so. <laughs> but... I was building bridges long before him. <laughs> I just think that I just think that's cute. <laughs> so, what fun they had! Uh, Jerry Lewis also uh, also known for his uh, easy to easiness oh, yeah. to work Super with. Super easy to work with, beloved by all. No ego. Uh, so of course we've talked about many times how David Lean did not. Uh, get along saw actors as cattle much in the sense of uh alfred hitchcock stanley kubrick maybe not as uh as insane as those two but maybe who knows something of a tyrant anyways on something set. Of a tyrant not really caring if we do 100 takes or 10 takes oh um, he was in the stanley kubrick clearly operated in his school of thought yeah uh 
I mean, they were operating at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so he often clashed with his cast members on multiple occasions, particularly Alec Guinness uh, and James Donald, who played uh, Clifton. James Donald actually thought the novel was anti-British. Really? Yeah. So they had a lot of uh, back and forth about that. That probably came from the satire aspect of it, I imagine. Yeah, I would say so. Uh, Lean had kind of a lengthy beef with uh, Alec Guinness over how to play the role of Nicholson. Alec Guinness wanted to play the part with a sense of humor and sympathy, kind of like the book, I guess. Uh... Well, just the sense of humor part. The sense of humor in the in the book is satirical. Uh, in it, actually, that's the thing is that although Nicholson is not a satirical character in the same way that he is in the book, uh, he's very similar. Like they're very much like very straight faced, very much like s- stolid in the British way. You know, like stiff upper lip. Well, Lean uh, obviously disagreed, and he wanted him to play him basically like that, like a yeah. boar. He should be his character should be a boar, a boring man. Um, on another part, they on another occasion they argued over the scene where Nicholson reflects on his career in the army. That monologue we played mm-hmm. earlier, uh, Lean, like I said, Lean filmed the scene behind Guinness, and Alec Guinness would just explode in him. Was like, "Why are you filming it like this? It makes no sense. Why are you not looking at my face?" And after after Alleginus was done with this scene, David Lean apparently famously said, Now you can all fuck off and go home, you English actors. Thank God that I'm starting work tomorrow with an American. <laughs> so he was... He, he, I'm, I'm sure William Holden did whatever he wanted. He had a much easier time with William Holden, apparently. Uh, let's talk about the, the bridge explosion. Mm. The filming of the bridge explosion was in, in the presence of the Prime Minister of Ceylon. Is that what it is? Uh, Sri Lanka now, but yes, yeah, Ceylon, Ceylon at the time. Ceylon time. And a team of government dignitaries. However, the ca- one of the cameramen was unable to get out of the way of the explosions in time, so Lean had to stop filming. Uh, and not, obviously not do the explosion. Uh, the train then kept going because there was no way to stop it. Crashed into a generator on the other side of the bridge. Because <laughs> they wouldn't have had the, they had enough track for it to... Yeah. Yep. And it was wrecked and it had to be repaired in time to be blown up the next morning. Uh, the producers also nearly suffered a catastrophe following the filming of the bridge explosion. So basically to ensure that they captured this, they had to use multiple cameras. I think they said something like nine cameras. Yeah, it was crazy. Easy, yeah. um, for that time, anyways, that's nuts to have that many cameras on set. Uh, so ordinarily the film, like the actual film that they had, they had filmed of the, of the explosion, uh, would have been taken by boat to London, but there was a crisis. So it was taken by air freight, uh, when the shipment failed to arrive in London, so they couldn't find the film. Mm. There was a worldwide search, uh, much to the producer's horror. The film containers were found a week later on the airport tarmac in Cairo, sitting in the hot sun. Oh fuck. Although it was not, although it was, it was exposed to sunlight and should have been hopelessly ruined somehow it was processed and the shots were perfect and they they appeared exactly as they appear were, in the were movies. they still using nitrite film in the 50s because i'd be more afraid of it just spontaneously catching fire on the runway i don't know <laughs> late 50s i think they might have been past that at that i would point. hope so that stuff was awful yeah i think honestly you could show someone a modern film watcher a modern, you know what I'm saying. Modern film person watcher thing. Uh, you could show them this movie, a casual film goer, and they could enjoy it just as much as a, uh, a a modern action movie. I think it's got the pacing. It's two hours and forty something minutes, but it's got unreal pacing. It moves. Uh, yeah. It moves like it doesn't. Yeah, there's not a whole lot of scenes. There's there's scenes of talking, but the talking is like you know there's a twist. There's like little things that come up. It's not just like oh yes a rubbish. Oh yes mm. give me that cigarette. Oh the British. Oh yes I'm having a great time. Um, there's not a lot of fucking around. Everything that that happens kind of happens in service of this of, of the plot of of the building the bridge and getting to that point. Do you know how long 
the composer was given to write the music for this film? Uh, three hours. Well, no, not that bad. <laughs> but he was given ten days to write around 45 minutes worth of music. Wow. Uh... He described the music, he's the job, he described the job that he had on the Bridge on the River Kwai, by the way, Malcolm Arnold is his name, as the worst job I ever had in my life. <laughs> it explains why he used the Colonel Bogey March, an already existing song for a great deal of the soundtrack. That song was decided on on the set. Really? So, at the beginning of the film, they're all marching. And David Lean is getting furious because they can't march in, t- in time. And he's like, God damn it, march in time, you, you know, British sons of bitch, whatever he says. <laughs> he's getting very angry. And he says, come up with some kind of song that you can sing to kind of keep you in time. And one of them is like, because the Colonel Bogey March was written in like 1916 or something like mm-hmm. that. So he's like, oh, why don't, why don't we do this one? And he's like, fine, fine, fine. So they do the song and they start marching in time to it. And David Lean's like, well, fuck, I'm going to put it in the movie. And, uh, That's so when you see them whistling, mm-hmm. they're, they are whistling they're the whistling. song, but obviously, you know, it's ADR too. And that became like the most iconic thing about this movie. Like when you hear that, when you hear that Colonel Bogey March, you generally will think of Bridge on the River Kwai because it's so inextricably linked with it because of that. The last thing I'll say about the background, there's right. a lot of this movie. Hmm. Uh, the budget for this movie was $2.8 million, which in 1957 was quite a, a million of that, which apparently went to William Holden. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> uh, which is even more impressive. Yeah. Uh, the, the box office, it made $30.6 million worldwide, which Ooh. is astronomical uh, in, wow. in nowadays. 15 times your budget? That's a pretty good profit. That'd be like if, the, like be like times, if Avengers yeah. made like a billion and a half dollars. It did. Oh, did it? Okay, so <laughs> so, so it was an Avengers-level success, we'll say. Yeah. Uh, it was also the highest-grossing film in 1957 in the U.S. The last thing... Uh, so the last part of this is that... Uh, so back in that back in those times, they didn't often play movies on TV, but when they did, they would usually play the first half, and then the next night would be the second half. This is the first time they decided to gamble and just play the whole movie one night. It was watched by 18 million people... Um, and it was uh, and it was a huge success yeah. for ABC. It was like well, the biggest... and, and as you point out, like people didn't have access to movies in the way that they do now back then. So really, any movie, if if they were gonna like on a Sunday night play a movie, it was a big deal. And then you know if, if it wasn't Wizard of Oz, that was a big one. You know if it wasn't Wizard of Oz, then they do something like Bridge on the River Kwai, a more contemporary movie. Like yeah, that eighteen million people would watch that because a lot of those people probably didn't have a chance to see that movie in the theater when it came out. So that is the background of the film. Let's dive a little deeper. Sure. We did get quite a bit, quite deep during when we were talking about the plot, but let's talk about some other stuff. Um, I do want to play the scene you mentioned about the Geneva Convention. Sure, yeah, we'd like to hear that. So this is, uh, interestingly, what I really like about Saito's character, Sesu Hayakawa, is anytime he addresses them, mm. he has to be above them. Yes. He always has, at first he just has like a little box. Mm. Later on, he actually has steps made yeah. so that he can rise above them. It's like he's very delicately holding his power over mm. them. The other thing that's really cool um, about his character is he doesn't he isn't necessarily a stereotypical tyrant. No. Um, the way he breaks them down, one of the first things he says to them is like, it's not my fault you're here. Your officers surrendered. You should be mad at them. He's like trying to break them apart. He's trying to pull the old, uh, almost like a communist kind of thing on him. He's like, yeah, your your bosses are the real problem here. Over, throw off your chains. You know? Exactly. Like even so much as later, when the officers are in the punishment hut and Alkinus is in the box, uh, the oven, 
He says that your officers are lazy and they don't want to work as hard as you've worked. Mm-hmm. And now, as a reward, I'm giving you the day off and I've got presents for everyone. Which turns out to be like mail or like Red Cross packages that were theirs anyways. Red, yeah, Red Cross, yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, so I want to play this uh, this clip here. I must call your attention, Colonel Saito, to Article 27 of the Geneva Convention. Belligerents may employ as workmen prisoners of war who are physically fit other than officers... The English book. By all means. You read English, I take it. Do you read Japanese? I'm sorry, no, but if it's a matter of precise translation, I'm sure that can be arranged. You see, the code specifically states that the... Diverse in the ranks! You speak to me of code? What code? The coward's code! What do you know of the soldiers called? Of Bushido? Nothing! You are a worthy of command! He slapped the shit out of him. Yeah, that little thing you heard was the, the slap. He's bleeding from that, and it wasn't a paper cut. No. But then but then uh, Nicholson goes and, and picks up the Geneva Convention and dusts it off very theatrically. Which is uh, very much a call, called back later. When Nicholson is killed, uh, because when he, when that thing, when the, the mortar goes off, he drops and he gets up and he takes his hat, dusts it off. But then when he goes to put it on, he just kind of drops it and falls and over. Falls it's almost like, plunger, yeah. it's almost like he's so attached to the rules and principles that he's even going to go even and pick his hat dying. up. Yeah. But then as he knows it's over, he finally lets go and says, yeah. fine. And that's an interesting thing, too, about Nicholson in the movie versus in the book. Because in the movie, he has that moment, right? That moment of, what have I done? Mm. And he realizes what he did. And in the book, he, he doesn't, He right? does not, because yeah. they don't blow the bridge up. Uh, I, I don't know what happens to him. I haven't got to the end yet. I assume he gets killed or, or, or dies. Or also, somebody. kind of surprising in a movie made in 1957 to have that many characters die. I'm yeah. just going to say. Because like, there were certain rules back then. You mm. couldn't really kill off a lot of main characters unless they were like complete villains. You know what I mean? Yeah, well... Shit, I think the only person that survived was was uh, was ma- Major uh, Warden. Major Warden, yeah. Yeah, and that nurse. And the question is whether Warden would actually have even survived even further if he would have been picked up by the Japanese shortly thereafter, or if he would have fled into the jungle with the Siamese girls to have a real good time. That's true. <laughs> so I want to talk about the character of Shears, mm-hmm. uh, played by William Holden, the only American in this yes, film. Yes, I'm William Holden, and I was in this movie. I thought you were going to be like, I'm William Holden. Hello, yes, I'm William Holden. You may have thought of me I was an American, and you would be wrong. <laughs> One little funny thing is we get the relationship between him and Nicholson is pretty interesting, and they both almost refer to each other, and in in like, okay, so he almost calls Nicholson a limey. Hmm. And he's, he's talking about British people. He says, lime British people. Yeah. And then later, <laughs> um, Nicholson says, like, oh, what a typical American. Well, maybe we should listen to him. Like it's very like <laughs> yeah. they almost want to insult each other, but they hold back. Like, no, we're allies. We have to work together on this one. Yeah. Well, there's even a thing later where um, Shears is going to this when he's on this island. Uh, when he goes to like this boot camp, which is hilarious. I find that part is like one of the funniest scenes. Well, when in he's the movie. like walking through and the guy attacks him. Yeah, yeah, one of the funniest scenes in the movie <laughs> because it's almost like it's like a fucking. Uh, Green Hornet, like, Cato-esque boot camp. Uh, oh, you always have to be on the lookout for an attack. And he says he says to him, um, 
It's funny. I would have thought was it Kato in uh, in uh, Pink Panther? You're thinking of? Oh, maybe. I think so. Yeah. Uh, doesn't Green Hornet have an associate? He does, that, like, but I, I don't know that. Does Kato in Green Hornet always attack the Green Hornet to keep him on his toes? Because that's what Kato in Pink Panther does. But we're not talking about Pink Panther, are we? We're not. But I don't remember. The other thing too is we get lots of hints. Uh, we talked about, of course, Shears ends up that he's not a naval commander; that no. he's a what uh, is swab he, jockey. Well, he's he's an enlisted man. He probably is uh, whatever the I don't know what sailor. I guess I'm a swab jockey, major <laughs> commander Shears. But anyway, uh, so there's little hints of that throughout the movie. the the one The one I noticed is uh, there's a part where at the very beginning. Nicholson and his troops arrive and uh, someone says so Shears like you should probably warn him like you know more about this than anyone and he says nah I'm not gonna do that and somebody actually says the line to him you're neither an officer nor a gentleman <laughs> like literally tells us right there <laughs> like you, you, you brush it off because yeah. I brushed it off I was like oh yeah okay it's like, oh, he's just making a little bon mot there at, and, uh... and the guy that's saying it doesn't know but it's a, it's telling us like that's a little hint the other little hint I noticed is you notice when he goes to the boot camp and that guy attacks him yeah. And the guy says, oh, you have poor form. You stab first and then take him down. When Shears is escaping from the camp, he does the same move. Yeah. So it's like he's not trained. Yeah. I just think like, there's a little, like, callback. Well, yeah, exactly. He's, I mean, not that, not that a naval officer necessarily would be trained in all that, but maybe they would be. I mean, I, I think... No, but I think that's a, I think that's a definite yeah. hint that something's up. Uh, he also says all the causes of death for prisoners, malaria, dysentery, famine, bullet wounds, snake bites, Saito. <laughs> <laughs> very, very. Yeah. Which I had to look up to find out what that was. It's a thalidomide deficiency, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Oh, okay. I had no idea. So make sure you uh, get your thalidomide. Oh, okay. Not thalidomide. That'll give you deformed babies. Don't take that. What did you think about Saito having that very American calendar in his hut? Yeah, I thought that was a weird thing. Like, it was clearly from an Ohio tire shop or something. It's like, a very intentional choice, yeah. though. It's clearly something he got from, like, a prisoner. Yeah. But, like, is David Lean trying to say that he's got this, like, sort of interest in American culture? Because you don't put something like that in a movie for nothing. And, it's and a very, it's a very prominent. I can't say for certain, but I do know that in you know in in recent years, uh, is is it an, an otaku? Is that a Japanese person that's super into, or maybe that's an American person that's super into Japanese culture? But there are many Japanese people that are into American culture, and I feel like that's been a thing for a long time. So it wouldn't be crazy that Saido might you know enjoy American culture. He uh, spent some time in London uh, as well, so he'd been in what in the West. In my mind, the image of, like, the soldier that lugged that fucking calendar with them all the way to a prison camp. Like, where did that come from? Did he get that? Like, did they did they capture an American ship and clear up the shit and Saido was given a choice? Did they, like... Did, did, did this guy have it, like, shoved in the bag of his pants as he, like, walked to the camp? Like, why? Where did this calendar come from? That it made it all the way from Ohio and it probably printed the previous year for 1943 yeah. all the way to fucking Thailand. I don't know. I think it's a. I just think it's really. Uh, it's interesting. It's yeah. just a very deliberate choice. I mean, and you know what? The Japanese are men. I mean, they can appreciate a pinup. <laughs> Another thing too about Saito and like the Japanese soldiers in general. What I really liked is that when they're talking to each other, yeah, no subtitles. So it's almost like we're in the position of the POWs mm. not knowing what's what they're saying. I mean, we get the general gist of what they're probably well, saying, the but like we're also like. Oh, what are they talking yeah. about? Which I is mean, what everyone else is thinking. I mean, there's really not that much Japanese spoken in the movie. It's basically Saito issuing orders and the odd like word he has with the with a soldier. Like we don't just have him rattling off speeches or anything. 
Uh, one interesting thing I read too, I should, I, I, mean, I guess I could have mentioned this in the background, but I want to talk about it. I'll talk about it now is when, um, Nicholson, like Al Guinness is getting dragged out of the oven, mm. not an actual oven, just like a box where he gets imprisoned. A metal box. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it could be, they probably could have cooked food in there. It would have been hot enough. <laughs> but when he's getting dragged out of there and he's like kind of limping and stuff, right? He apparently mimicked that walk. Uh, his 11 year old son had polio. So he's doing the same thing as his... Uh, he's walking like his son would have walked. That was a choice that I really appreciated. I didn't know that. But just... Because he, he... In such a way that he's like... He's so trying so desperately to hold himself in a dignified manner. But but obviously the, the time in there has had its effect on him, you know. And that's amazing that that's where he, he took that from. It was such a genius choice on his part. And in a very British way, Al Guinness said it was the finest, finest piece of work I've ever done. That now that's pop- a walk I've not walked in a long time. A long time. <laughs> Funny thing, he's actually not that pompous. When he's asked to talk about his his best his best movie that he did or his best performance, he says, I don't know. I'm just lucky I did a bunch of movies. Yeah. Although he's always happy to shit on Star Wars. I think he's more upset <laughs> that Star Wars is... He's mostly recognized for Star Wars and not his other works. Yeah, well, he's he was, he was shitting on it after A New Hope came out, but before Empire came out, Still signed back up to do Empire and Jedi. Still showed up in ghost form. So clearly, man needed a paycheck. Again, I still I still think it's more of a thing where he yeah. didn't want to be known as Obi-Wan Kenobi predominantly. Yeah. I mean, it, theoretically, before, if that movie had never come out, he would probably be known for Colonel Nicholson. If nothing, you know, I mean, he, certainly he was in Lawrence of Arabia and, lots, and the Man in the White Suit. And He's not going to be known for as, as the Man in the White Suit. <laughs> I was the man in the white suit. Remember me? I spilled, no, I don't, sir. I spilled wine in it. You could see it in the sequel of the man in the stained white suit. Oh, yes. We had a lot of fun making that one. We should probably talk about the cinematography in this movie. Oh, yeah. Beautiful movie. Except for all that day for night shit. It looks great. It's a beautiful location they chose. It's right in the thick jungle. Like, it is... It is something. What I really like is how it's so stark mm. and cold and like brutal when you're in the camps mm-hmm. at the beginning. And then when we get to where Shears is talking with the British soldiers, it is lush. It's oh, yeah. beautiful. Well, Sri Lanka is beautiful. There's beaches. There's, there's yeah. But the way he shows it though, like he yeah. it purposely shows it like so like vast. And, and you'll notice too on, on the journey of the commandos getting to the camp, y- y- same thing where you're getting these beautiful shots. There's a shot where Joyce is climbing up the side of the mountain and the camera just shows these massive waterfalls in the background. And it's absolutely stunning. Here's what I think. Obviously we talked about the dinner scene between Nicholson and Saito as the moment, the pinpoint, the moment where the power switches. Yeah. Um, Again, that scene is amazing. So good. But I think the moment where he really starts to go off his rocker, I mean, yes, where he starts saying the officers are starting to help, for sure, that's an odd one. Mm. But what about he goes into the medical tent and he starts recruiting people who are too sick to do anything. Too sick, too injured. And you, know, a, you could a slab of paint here, a, a few nails there. And I'm just like watching, you're watching this man like deteriorate yeah. yeah and and even clifton at that point is like you're gonna you're gonna bring all these men out to help these men are like these men can't do work and uh nicholson is saying oh no no they're gonna volunteer i'm gonna ask them if they want to but of course if you're commanding officer yeah is you're asking volunteered, to, as they say quote unquote volunteer 
you're going to say yes. Yeah. Now, granted, he doesn't take everyone out of there, but it's the it's the craziest thing because as they're marching out, they're playing this super like triumphant, victorious music. But if you're watching what's on screen, everyone's limping, limping. and stumbling around. It's not it's not a victorious moment. Well, in but also I just just say like I don't know that this act of going in and looking for men to help out would be so out of character because in a desperate situation if they were like you know if they weren't in a prison camp if they were still fighting for their side and they were in a desperate situation I could see Nichols probably doing the same thing because in a situation like that you literally need every hand that you can and if if a sick guy can sit there and like nail a couple boards together that's one less healthier guy that has to do it it just adds to the, all the stuff he's been doing. But, though, but it's like, the fact that he's doing it in service of this thing that is going to help the enemy. And not only is it going to help the enemy, they're building a better bridge than the Japanese could possibly build. Now, in the book, they talk about how terrible the Japanese engineers are. Uh, and Which they kind of allude to in this They movie do allude to it bit. in the movie. And, I mean, obviously, they're doing a terrible job if the chief engineer decides to build the bridge on a fucking swamp. Yeah. Actually, in the book, they move the whole camp down the road because they they, they move the whole camp down because they figure the hours are less to rebuild the camp down the road than to have the men march back and forth every day to the new site. Okay. Well, I mean, I think we covered everything we could have covered as far as the turn in terms of the details of the actual movie. I mean, there was a lot. This is a longer episode because you know there's a lot to talk is, about. And I just love this movie so much. This is I've, I've watched this movie a number of times before, and I've always loved it. And I'm so glad that I, we get to share it with you today because it's such a good fucking movie. And me because it's the first time I've seen it. Yes, exactly. So let's talk about the Oscars. Oscars. It wins seven Oscars and nominated for eight. So the only ooh. person that was snubbed. Best best supporting actor. He is nominated. Sesu Hayakawa. The fuck? That's bullshit, Brendan. That's fucking bullshit. And I'll say it now. That's bullshit. He deserved the award for just owning this movie. It was for winning movies for the year. It should have been Sesui Hayakawa. Best Oscar for everything. Best Oscar. That's right. He would have won the best Oscar because he would have got so many Oscars. He would have had the best Oscar as well. So anyway, he was the only one that was nominated and didn't win. The, the Best Supporting Actor award that year went to Red Buttons for Sayonara. Are you fucking kidding me? Red Buttons? Now, I like Red Buttons. He's a good actor, but come on. You are an angry person. I hate Red Buttons. I mean, no, I don't. I like Red Buttons. I saw him in a movie once. He was real good. All right, well, let's talk about what it won. Best Cinematography. Okay, makes sense. Best Editing. Yep. Best musical score. Sure. Best adapted screenplay. And that's pretty good for a guy, like the musical score, for a guy who thinks it's the worst thing he ever did. He won a fucking Well, no, Oscar no, he it. doesn't think it's the worst score he ever did. He yeah. thinks it's the worst job or the he worst ever experience did. he ever did. Yeah. But it did at least result in some gold. <laughs> Best actor for Alec Guinness. Ab- deservedly so. Best director for David Lean. Absolutely. And Best Picture. Well, who else? What other uh, movies were nominated that year, Jason? So- so we obviously Bridge won that year, but other movies that were nominated for the the best picture that year were Twelve Angry Men with Henry Fonda, if you, the, one of a classic. Yep, absolutely. Uh, Peyton Place, a movie I've never heard of. Never heard of that. Sayonara, and Witness for the Prosecution. Heard of it, never watched it. There you go. So I yeah I I've only heard of Twelve Angry Men and Bridge on the River Kwai Kwai won that year. Uh, now e- even in in the Alec Guinness was up against Marlon Brando. Who was in Sayonara? Anthony Friend uh, Francois for a hate a hat full of rain. What a strange name for a movie. Um, Charles Lawton for Witness for the Prosecution and Anthony Quinn, whom uh, we will talk about later when we get to Lawrence of Arabia, because Alec Guinness and Anthony Quinn were both in that movie. Uh, Anthony Quinn for Wild is the Wind as Gino. Gone with the Wind. Yeah, Gone with the Wind. He played Gino in Gone with the Wind. Of course. You know they're they're Italian housekeeper. Friend. 
<laughs> no, unfortunately, the reality is much more offensive. Yeah, it really is. Uh, okay. <clears throat> Did not win a Best Actress uh, award because uh, nobody was nominated because no women have any lines of substance in the movie. Except for the nurse. The nurse that, 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 that William Holden's trying to fuck. Oh, by the way, David Lean hates that scene. <laughs> but he said, he said, he's like, I watched it later and I... I didn't ruin the film too much, but I don't care for it. Makes I sense. want to talk about... This is a big thing I wanted to talk about. The connection between this film and Star Wars. Oh. So, obviously, the most obvious connection is Al Guinness is in both of them. Yes. Uh, but Obi-Wan Kenobi, and he's also in Bridget that requires uh, Private Nicholson. This movie, though... This Colonel, movie, Colonel Nicholson. Sorry. Private Nicholson. Come on. This, whatever. This movie... He's an officer, for Christ's sake. This movie made Alec Guinness a star. And it basically put him on George Lucas's radar when he wanted to cast, you know, Star Wars. I'm looking for an old man who's probably English. <laughs> uh, and, then, and, like, I have written down here, so this is just a bunch of things I pulled from various places, but The Bridge of the River Quiet is a film that truly encapsulates the opening lines of Revenge of the Sith's Crawl, which is episode three. Uh, there are heroes on both sides. Evil is everywhere. And that's a thing that George Lucas legitimately took as an idea from watching this movie. Uh, uh, this this I, I is confirmed. If... No, this is confirmed. No, I know. But, but the idea of there are heroes on both sides, evil is everywhere. I mean, yeah, maybe you could argue that about the Japanese. I wouldn't want to argue that about the Germans. I mean, sure, there probably were some heroic guys over there, but they were Nazis. The now, biggest, the biggest point of comparison, another big point of comparison, though, is that William Holden's performance as Shears was the major inspiration for Han Solo. Yeah, I can see that. He's sort of a selfish rogue type who doesn't, at the beginning anyway, mm -hmm. who doesn't really care about either side. He just wants to get out of the war. He's not even really a commander, right? I mean, that's not a console, but you know what I mean. He's not, He just wants to get out. But by the end of the film, he's done a 180, and he helps, but he's still kind of got that, you know, standoffish thing. He, would thinks, say, he thinks both sides are dumb. Yeah, well, I, but I would say the big difference is, is that in this movie, he goes back to the jungle because he has no other choice. In, this in movie, Star he, Wars, Han comes back because he wants to. He doesn't have to come back, but he does. No, but I, but when he's in the jungle in Bridge of the Require, I mean, yes, he doesn't have a choice, but he still fights. Oh, yeah, no, he's, he does definitely he's going to do his duty. A, a character turnaround yeah. at that point. Um, and also in this movie, he does shoot Greedo first. <laughs> Absolutely. So, this this is actually something I picked up on without even reading this because I was like, why does the jungle in the bridge on the require like look so familiar to me? Like like it's the way it's filmed that it looks like, and it's Return of the Jedi. Oh really? When they're on the planet uh, in Return of the Jedi and they're the gonna forest blow up. moon of Endor. Yes, Endor. Yes. No, uh, no, the forest moon of Endor. Endor is the gas giant that the forest moon orbits. Oh Dummy. Boy. Jesus. Glad we're not doing the George Lucas Fuck. podcast. Get your head in the game. Next week, America Graffiti. <laughs> um. But anyway, so, yeah, so this, the forest uh, was used in Return of the Jedi, basically. the Almost the exact same thing, and they even filmed it in Southeast Asia. Hmm. Uh, it's also like, a, there's also sort of a storyline similarity in that Shears and the men are looking to place the charges while this whole other storyline is going on at the same time, kind of mm -hmm. like how in Jedi they're trying to... Um, destroy the shield generator. Destroy the shield generator so that the ships can blow up the yeah. Death Star. So it's very, like... It's, yeah, there's there's definitely there's some inspiration from uh, taken from that. George Lucas was a huge David Lean fan, and so was Steven Spielberg. Yeah. Which, of course, we talked about the Javago episode. David Lean got script notes from Steven Spielberg and ripped them in half. <laughs> uh, what a passage to India! I have to imagine uh, something like that. Because yeah. that would have been the only movie he would have made when Spielberg had any truck. 
And the, other thing, the only other thing I wanted to say is that, again, Al Guinness was disappointed that people thought of him as the Star Wars guy rather than all the other movies he did, which he, I always thought of him as the Star Wars guy before I knew about Bridge on the River Kwai. Because Star Wars, you... you it's like the most popular movie ever made. Well, and you see it when you're a kid. How many other Alec Guinness movies would you watch when you were a kid? You're not like your parents are going to be like, hey, you're five years old. Here's your copy of The Man in the White Suit. Enjoy. <laughs> we made two references to that movie. We still haven't reviewed it yet. <laughs> we'll get there. I want, okay, really quick. Uh, like I said, guys, this is a bit of a longer one, but we do have a lot of stuff to talk about. But we're right at the end here. I want to talk about some uh, potential other directors that almost oh. took this project on. Mm. Uh, John Ford. Oh, that would have been interesting. William Wyler. Uh, known for I don't know the name uh, he's done a lot of stuff thanks Brendan <laughs> I can't appreciate please. it you're I... always helping me out with your random knowledge look up William Wyler and you'll find out why don't you look it up Howard Hawks okay yeah Fred Zinneman who like I said did uh, High Noon yep and Orson Welles the movie would have never been finished then Orson Welles was going to play Nicholson <laughs> well maybe well wait how so, fat was Orson Welles in 1957 Citizen Kane was 41. 41. Uh, he'd be a bit chubby. He'd, I mean, really he'd, have the right, to, he'd be the right age. He'd really have to work himself down, though, to play a... Because, I mean, by that point... Because you have to remember, too, that the, that by this point... So, here's an interesting book uh, thing I'll talk about quickly. Um, in the book, it, it points out... Or it, it talks about what happened during the actual surrender. And they got the order to surrender. And they had, like at least a couple days or so before the Japanese were going to show up and some of the guys wanted to escape and Nicholson wouldn't let them go. He said, we've been ordered to surrender, so we're going to stay here and follow our orders. If you leave, you're committing like treason, essentially. Uh, I don't know where I was going with that. But uh, yeah, Orson Welles, too fat to play Nicholson. Oh, okay, here's the point I had. So so th- that was in 1942. 1943 is when they start building this bridge. So in that interim of the year, you know, it hadn't been, it had been rough on the troops. And so Nicholson is rather skinny. I mean, Alec Guinness is kind of a skinny guy, but as well as all the other troops are also very skinny and emaciated because they're not getting fed enough. They're just probably just getting fed rice and salt. Like, so. And to answer your question, William Wyler has directed Ben-Hur, Roman Holiday, Best Years of Our Lives, Mrs. Miniver. Yeah, those ben, are just ben, some of them. Ben Hur's a good movie, uh, for sure, and it, he definitely has an epic sensibility. It's uh, it's uh, it's it's okay. It's good. Yeah. Uh, the other people that were possibly going to play Nicholson were Lawrence Olivier. Okay, yeah, and Cary Grant. Cary Grant. Hello. Have you ever heard him do a British accent? Uh, I mean, old old timey actors already kind of sound. They kind of do. They? they do that that uh, mid Atlantic accent. Yeah. Hello, I'm Cary Grant. <laughs> Okay, Jason, so we come to the end. Bridge on the River Kwai is number 11 on the British Film Institute, top 100 British films of all British time, mm-hmm. of 19 British, 90 British 9. Yes. I hope you got all that, folks. It's the highest ranked film we've watched so far. It's also the first film we've discussed that is on both this list and the 2007 AFI top 100 uh, As it should movies be. list. Now, the question is, is it an American film, though? I mean, it's Columbia Pictures, so do we give it the pass? It's Columbia Pictures. And William Holden? And William Holden, but that's it, isn't it? American screenwriters. Okay. Carl Foreman yeah, suppose, and yeah. Michael Wilson, despite being uh, not credited. They were, however, posthumously credited by the Academy. Thankfully. And their Oscars, the Oscars were recognized as being theirs okay. afterwards, but, I mean, they were already passed away. But, I mean, it's a good gesture, I guess. Yes, absolutely. Um... I fucking love this movie. I fucking love this movie. You, you, you told me 
I mean, I jokingly, I joked with you last week. like, oh, maybe I won't like it. I was into it. It was, uh, it was well paced. Mm-hmm. It had a, it had a beat that I could dance to. It moved. It had great performances, uh, especially from Guinness and Hayakawa. Terrific conclusion. Flawless script. Entertaining from top to bottom. And I, like I said earlier, I think this would be a good example of an older film that would still hold up with a modern audience, uh, as it's because uh, of the pacing and uh, just the exciting action sequences in general. Based on watching Alec Guinness in Doctor Zhivago and watching Alec Guinness in Bridge on the River Kwai, I've come up with a rule, and the rule is the more British Alec Guinness is, the better the movie ends up being. And he's super fucking British in this movie. He's not very British in in. I mean, he is because he's Alec Guinness, but he's not that British. In uh, Zhivago, he doesn't even try to put on a Russian accent, although we discussed that. <laughs> I, I'm a Russian general. Mm, yes, he says that all the time in the movie. I'm a Russian general. Look at me. He, uh, he how British is he in Star Wars, though? Uh, he's it. He, well, now that's a name I've not heard in a long time. A long time. He's he's basically default Alec Guinness British at that point. So he's I, I would put him about a seven on the British scale. He's at a, he's at an easy nine. In uh, Birds on the River Kwai. I want to leave a little room, though, because I don't know how British she is in The Man in the White Suit. Oh, Three shit. times, motherfucker! Three times! You're scared of the cat. I'm sorry, kitty. I love you. Uh, oh, there she goes. Bye-bye. So, you're going to say uh, bottom of your list, eh? <laughs> take it all the way to the top, Brendan! <laughs> I don't want to tip my hand yet, but take it all the way to the top. I think, well, I mean, this is obvious. I think we, we've heaped praise on this movie like crazy. Yeah. This is the one to beat. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Uh, it's going to be tough. But, there's always next week, Jason. Oh. So yes, good squire. Ah. It is your turn to roll the dice. And what will we be doing with these dice, Jason? Uh, well, after I take them out of your ass, I will be rolling them. And whatever numbers come up, that's the movie we're going to watch. If we get 11 again, we're going to do quiet again. So get ready, folks. We are not. <laughs> We have, we should we should make a decision right now because we, this is we're we're seven deep now. Yeah. I mean, I think it's time to kind of discuss what happens if we, uh, you know. Well, at this door. at this point, with the majority of films left, we just do a reroll. If if we get the same movie again, we just do a reroll. I guess I like the idea of like going up or down. Okay. Until we reach one that we haven't seen yet. Right, well, we can do yet. that too. All right. So up or down? Uh, you know what? For our sanity, up. We'll we'll switch we'll it. Up. We'll switch it back and forth. Oh yeah, who knows? We'll All see right. what happens. We'll go up and then next we go down. Okay, ready? All right. You got those out of my ass. Mm. Oh yeah. <laughs> Here, Listen we go. To Here we go. Listen to him, ladies and gentlemen. These are the dice that control our fate right now. Are we ready? Are you ready? Let's do this, Brendan. A hundred. Are you serious? Zero zero wow. zero. Wow. A hundred. Or would that be well? No, it's a hundred. Has to be ten. And, no, it'd be ten, wouldn't it? No, if because it was it, ten, that would be on the ten. That would be zero. Yeah, that's a hundred. That's the only way we can get a hundred. Okay, well we'll do that then. So, it's not, it's not the Carry On movie. That's ninety nine. Number one hundred on the British Film Institute's top one hundred British films of all time. We are going to be talking about The Killing Fields. The Killing Fields. Nineteen eighty four, directed by Roland Joffe. Oh, so this is some Cambodia shit. I've heard of the title. That's it. Yeah, I, I know. Is this the? Is this maybe the movie that a young Christian Bale is in? No, but it does have Craig T. Nelson. Oh, coach and John Malkovich. 
Oh, John Malkovich. <laughs> I was hoping you were going to say, oh, coach. <laughs> Again. <laughs> so well, that's crazy. I did. I did thought it was going to be a long, uh, much longer time before we got here, but yeah. we're doing number 100 next week. So, the Killing Fields. Some real, some real light, fun shit. No oh, doubt. yeah. So uh, yeah. get your laugh hats on, ladies and gentlemen. Carry on up the Killing Fields. That's right. <laughs> oh, God. I want that movie to exist so bad. Just want to throw in a quick plug here too. If you want to follow us on uh, follow us along on social media on Twitter, you can find us at bfi underscore pod. As well, you can also follow Jason. I'm at Jason D McLeod. That's M A C L E O D Scottish style on Twitter. So check me out and listen to my rantings and ravings. That's right. And you can also follow us on Facebook. Just search for said uh, <laughs> what were they thinking? Just search for for screen and country. And you can also find us on the podcasters. We're on Podbean, iTunes, and Stitcher. We're on Tinder. We're on Grinder. We're on anything you want. We're on your dick. That's right. Uh, but anyway, next week, the Killing Fields. So until then, God save the queen. God save the screen. For Screen and Country, I'm Brendan. And I'm Jason. Have at her! <laughs>